This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. You've made a will and a list of your possessions, but what about your digital legacy? And they lived in the forests and fought the Nazis for four long years. I talked to the director of the documentary, Four Winters. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. For decades, it's been a part of regular checkups that men dread. Now, scientists are warning that the digital rectal exam may not be accurate enough as a screening tool for prostate cancer. The technique is widely used to check the prostate gland with a finger for unusual swelling or lumps in the rectum. In some countries like Germany, it's the sole method used in a national screening program. But the findings presented at the European Association of Urology Annual Congress in Milan suggest the technique may be missing many cancers in their early stages, and researchers are calling for other methods to be routinely used. Israel is outpacing the U.S. in opioid prescriptions per capita and eclipsing all other OECD countries, according to a new study. Prescription fentanyl consumption in Israel was ranked first in the world in 2020, and that same year, morphine use stood at one in over 700 compared to one in 650 in the United States. The largest increase was recorded among non-cancer patients under 65, and among cancer patients, there was a more moderate increase. Rupert Murdoch is set to marry for the fifth time at the age of 92. The media tycoon has announced his engagement to 66-year-old former police chaplain Anne Leslie Smith. The couple met in September at his California vineyard. Murdoch says he dreaded falling in love but knew this would be his last chance. He split from his fourth wife, Jerry Hall, last year. Murdoch proposed on St. Patrick's Day, noting... He's a quarter Irish. Meanwhile, there's new meaning to the phrase, it runs like a Porsche. Billionaire Wolfgang Porsche is divorcing his wife because her dementia has led to changes in her personality. 74-year-old Claudia Porsche has caregivers looking after her around the clock. In recent months, she's been unable to move much on her own, and her mental awareness has rapidly declined, according to family. The 79-year-old Wolfgang has been getting close to a longtime friend who is 20 years his junior. The Porsche family assets have been estimated at almost $30 billion. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a grisly last resort for many families struggling to settle the estate of a departed loved one. They hope a fingerprint or face scan from the deceased body will unlock the digital assets 
behind phone and computer screens they can't get into. I talked with technology expert Carmi Levy about how to protect your online legacy and avoid this type of measure. In the ideal world, Libby, uh, those before we pass away, we would provide that access information to our loved ones, to uh, whoever we've appointed as executor of our state. Uh, we would give them our passwords, our, our authentication information, usernames, things like that, pins, um, and and you know walk them through where all of these digital assets are on our phones, in our accounts, within our apps. Um, just just as we do with regular assets, we would provide a similar overview for digital assets. But what we see in most cases is digital assets don't get the same attention as regular assets. And so, unfortunately, many family members, when they are playing the role of executor of the estate of someone who's passed on, they find themselves unable to get into the individual's phone or laptop or you know tablet or something like that. I know people with the best of intentions who say, I've given my kids all my passwords, but these days you have to change your password every few months. Exactly. And that's something that, you know, as you are uh, engaged in end-of-life planning, that's a conversation that you need to have with your executors, that everyone needs to be aware of how mom and dad or grandma and grandpa are managing their devices and that they have awareness into it so that they can then take over in case an individual passes on. Are you supposed to update your passwords every few months to your executors or your kids? Yep, uh, that's what I would do. That seems very cumbersome. The other thing uh, that I know our IT people talked about with great fanfare quite a while ago were these password manager apps. But lately I see warnings that they've been hacked into as well. Yep. Uh, the, the big one that's getting a lot of headlines is LastPass, which is a Canadian company based in southern Ontario. And uh, they had uh, their entire password vault, so basically the keys to the kingdom. They were sitting on the remote employee's computer, and that computer was compromised. So, um, you know, whereas we used to recommend that particular solution, we don't recommend it anymore. And certainly if you're looking at, uh, a, you know, competing platforms, for example, Dashlane uh, or 1Password, they too are vulnerable. I think it reinforces there is no perfect security solution. What matters, though, is that we have some kind of plan. Even if it's writing all your usernames and passwords down in a notebook and then letting your executor know where that notebook is, that could be more than good enough. It's certainly better than not having that conversation and then letting them try to figure it out for themselves afterward. Mm. Uh, But somebody else presumably could find the notebook. Sure. And again, you know, I think we have to decide how much effort is worth it versus how much reward uh, do we get at the other end. In other words, uh, you know, you said you used the word cumbersome before. Yeah, it's a little bit cumbersome because we have to invest time and effort and energy now. But you sort of have to think about, well, what happens if I don't do this uh, later on? I can speak directly to what happens when this planning does not happen. This has been a manual paper-based process for as long as anyone can remember. Only over the last few years has a lot of it migrated into the digital space. Um, but our, our planning process aren't, processes aren't keeping pace. And we're not including those digital pieces of our lives in the conversation. And so we're taking what has always been a very long and protracted and complex and often frustrating process, and we're making it even more so. You said you were affected by this. So how did you solve the problem? It's a 
weeks to try to figure it out. Um, and, uh, of course, we got no help from the banks or the financial institutions that we were working with because they had no knowledge. And, they sent, and we had no help from the technology companies because, as far as they were concerned, it wasn't our device. It belonged to the individual who had passed away. Um, so it took, in some cases, it essentially doubled the amount of time and effort that we would have otherwise put into it. Uh, we ultimately got what we needed. We ultimately closed off the estate, but it was an incredibly frustrating process that could have been avoided if we had simply had some conversations up front. If you designate beneficiaries to your devices and say that you want to grant them access, is that helpful in any way? It certainly is, uh, because then then the individual on the receiving end of this, of course, knows that that's coming, knows that there's a device out there, knows that on that device there are these and these apps that are that are material. But it's not enough to just designate it in the will. You have to then, because in many cases, uh, you know, the will is written and then it's, you know, sealed. It sits in a safety deposit box somewhere and it comes out when the individual passes away. And in many cases, as it's read, only, only then do the individuals become aware, oh, I didn't realize I was responsible for that. So not only do you have to incorporate those digital assets into the will, you have to have the conversation with whoever you are referring to, and then you have to you know, essentially work side by side with them so they know what their responsibilities are when the time does come. This is why, uh, you know, within families, we should always be having conversations about technology because, you know, the, the, we assume that, you know, everyone's got it figured out for themselves, but, you know, in my experience, they don't. Carmi Levy, thanks so much. Appreciate it, Libby. Thank you. That was technology analyst and journalist Carmi Levy. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a spirited story of Jewish resistance during the Holocaust through the eyes of those who were there. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, offering members-only discounts that can save you thousands of dollars a year. Find out more at carp.ca. We were Jewish boys and girls fighting against the Nazis. I managed to escape with my camera into the woods. That's a clip from Four Winters, which documents a little-known story of Jewish partisan resistance during the Holocaust and focuses on women. The documentary tells the tale of a group that took up arms in the forests of Eastern Europe to fight Nazis and their collaborators. It unfolds through the testimony of the fighters who were there, including Toronto resident Faye Schulman, who added a touch of panache with the leopard coat she always wore during her time in the forests. Director Julia Mintz dropped by the studio to talk about the film ahead of the Toronto premiere. When I stumbled upon the story of the Jewish partisans and this young girl, actually, I read a story um, about a young girl who dug herself into a ditch and was blowing up a Nazi train headed to the front lines. And it was probably about 10 seconds before I knew I wanted to learn a whole lot more and make a film about her. And then I learned there were over 25,000, 30,000 people in Eastern Europe alone that joined in these brigades across hundreds of miles of woods and woods and woods, banded together and fought back against the Nazis and their collaborators. How many people did you meet and how did you 
end up focusing on the people you focused on in the documentary? Because it, it really focuses on a very few people, including two Torontonians. It's interesting. I chose to make the film with just the per- partisans themselves. There are so many wonderful people that I interviewed and stories that didn't make it into the film. I think it was really about how the film fit together ultimately for those of you that are out there that write, you know, when you write books and you do creative work or even this interview, like there's always things that have to land on the editing room floor. And I think that the combination of the folks that we chose for the film, five of whom are women, which was also a big decision because often we're sidelined from history, especially World War II history. It's different. Uh, you see a lot of female women resistance fighters. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Faye Schulman, who was also a photographer who's local, <laughs> who lived her part of her life here and raised her family. She was among them and she took photographs. So it's really cool to see Faye, of course, and the other women that she photographed with her along the way. And actually, there were other women combat photographers within the Russian and Soviet and other partisan brigades. The film's been really celebrated as an incredibly rich archive of World War II history that's inclusive of women. And I feel very good about that. You know, I love that that's being pointed to, especially coming off of Women's History Month. Faye uh, passed away, I think, in 2021 at a very great age. I have a connection that I didn't even know about because Faye's brother, a longtime Toronto photographer who actually taught her to shoot, they came over on the boat with my parents. Amazing. So I, we knew them and I am in touch with their daughter, which is a, a pretty close connection, I have to say. Fabulous. And she kind of brought panache. I mean, she was famous for wearing a leopard coat. I mean, they lived in the forest in the winter. I, I can hardly imagine that. I learned from Faye, actually, that she left the coat in Eastern Europe and that she had told me that she buried it in the ground when she left. What would you say is fundamentally different in the experience of a woman and a man living in a forest for four winters uh, fighting as a partisan? Mike Stoll, one of the partisans that I interviewed, said when he got to the forest and he was in brigades and working on blowing up echelons and doing the sabotage that the partisans did. He said it wasn't until he was in the partisans that he knew that women could do everything that men could do and at times much better. He was startled and he was overjoyed. And he always said he was comfortable going on missions with women after he had had those experiences. And I think that that's very telling of the time of what these girls, they were girls. I mean, these were young, innocent people raised in close-knit families and communities. And all of a sudden now they're orphaned teenagers in the woods learning to use weapons. I think that unlike the men, when we talk about the difference of experiences, they really had to not only manifest this incredible courage and bravery, but they also had to really transition their understanding of who and how they were supposed to act in regard to their gender. And so this was a real additional twist on top of all the dangers that one obviously would think about as a woman alone in the forest. So 
this is an interesting space where girls really had to re-identify and transform to be with men equally in the woods. Nobody expected to survive. That wasn't, that wasn't in the cards. They, the one, the folks that I interviewed, nobody expected to come out of the forest alive. So it was really for them how they were going to live out their days. You know, there's a title, Frank Blakeman, who is one of the partisans featured in the film. The title of his book was I'd Rather Die Fighting. You know, when I set out to make the film, one of the biggest challenges is to kind of keep those those blinders on where you stay so keenly focused on what you're after. And I think for me, the goal in the film was to answer so many of those questions that I never got to ask. And whether it was at the Passover table, looking at relatives who had, you know, numbers on their arms or reading about the Holocaust, it was really very much about what was it like to be on that train and jump off? And what was it like and how was it possible that you got a weapon? And how did you learn to shoot that weapon? And how could 12 of you blow up a locomotive headed for the front lines? And so my focus was so clearly aimed at understanding this untold story that even though I was with partisans and I was in their home sometimes for days at a time, it still never felt like enough time to even mine all the facets of those memories. And so the stories that came after that, I didn't do a whole lot of exploring, but what I did have the honor of doing was getting to know them as human beings. And I can say that I felt that the lasting impact was for the partisans, a different kind of personal identified strength and fortitude that only someone who lived with what they went through could embody. And I can tell you that for me, living with their stories, I mean, I worked on this film on and off for well over a decade. So I really became so deeply familiar with each of their stories and became good friends with many of them that their courage, I think, lived with them. And now, you know, I felt like I learned and understood that the depths of my own courage were so much greater than I could understand. And I think for me, that's part of the vision of the film that maybe people will explore within themselves in hindsight after they've seen it, their own capacity for their own resiliency and courage, especially now as we face this awful rising tide of hate and anti-Semitism around the world. So I think that's the lasting impact is their manifestation of bravery. Julia Mintz, a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's great to be here. That was Julia Mintz, director of Four Winters. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.